Hi, everyone. This is Jenny. Um, the day that we are recording this is actually Friday, June 24th, and we have elected to record um, within hours of the three of us um, learning of the official overrule of Roe v. Wade through the Supreme Court of the United States, which we will refer to in this episode as SCOTUS. We are generally a group who really feels that it's important to get full information, sleep on something before making statements, uh, to do it in a more informed way. But today we really felt compelled to sit down and have a really raw conversation. And Annika has been kind enough to pull a lot of her um, political knowledge so that we can have a chat and a little bit of education surrounding our Canadian system and what all of this means for us here in Canada. We will be discussing abortion and contraception. So if these are topics that um, are not something that you can listen to right now, then take care of yourself and catch us next week or hop on and listen to an older episode. Thanks so much for being here. We really appreciate you all. Hi, and welcome to Meet Me in the Middle, the podcast that usually seeks the middle ground. Today, though, looks a little bit different. This is an mm-hmm. emergency episode that we're recording. Um, and the reality is the, things, the thing that we're going to talk about today doesn't have the same messy, messy middle ground that the wellness world does. Abortion is complex and layered, but much like four in five Canadians, all three of us support a woman's right to choose. I'm probably not going to make it through today's episode without crying. Today, instead of digging into multiple sides of an issue, we're instead going to look specifically at abortion access. We're going to talk about what that looks like in Canada and what, if any danger, it's in. I'm Annika Buckle, and I support a woman's right to choose. I'm Lee Freiling, and I absolutely support a woman's right to her own reproductive autonomy and health choices. I'm Jenny Omani, and as a registered nurse working in intensive care, I have seen exactly what happens when somebody um, uh, needs to access uh, emergency reproductive health, which includes ectopic pregnancies, which is a life-threatening condition. So Mm -hmm. I absolutely um, believe that uh, in the women's right to choose, um, and I'm deeply concerned by the lack of medical professionals in this decision-making. So... Unless you've been living under a rock, you probably know this. We're recording this on Friday this morning in the United States. The Supreme Court entirely overturned Roe v. Wade, a 1973 decision that declared abortion a federally protected right under the 14th Amendment, which says states can't deprive people of, quote, life, liberty or property without due process of law. Ruling abortion is not actually protected under those due process rights. So. Canada has a similar and also very different situation. Currently, thanks to R.V. Morgenthaler, which we'll talk more about in a minute, this decision agreed that Section 7 of the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms protects access to abortion. Section 7 states, every quote, everyone has the right to life, liberty, and security of the person and the right to not be deprived thereof except in accordance with the principles of fundamental justice. Now, this is a section that's been given a lot of news in the last two years around COVID regulations, but honestly, we are not going to go there today. Nope. 
So Canada is one of the only countries in the world with absolutely no legal restrictions at a federal level to restrict access to abortion. Now, access looks a little bit different, but again, we'll talk about that in a minute. This is something I think that is significant for us to talk about because technically under Canadian law, a woman at 40 weeks could have an abortion if that was necessary for whatever reason. Now, most providers won't do something over 20 weeks and they're allowed to choose that. Um, Healthcare is really tricky in Canada because it is both federally and provincially regulated. So you do end up with a little bit of a patchwork. Um, But unlike in the US, what that means is that our uh, access becomes federally entrenched which then automatically applies to all provinces and territories. Worth noting here is that Canada actually has a relatively low rate of abortion compared to other countries. This number has been declining since the 90s, which is actually a trend we see almost worldwide. But also worth noting that this rate is not just driven by access to abortion. It's also driven by other factors that some other countries don't have, including formal sex education. It's a mandatory part of the high school curriculum in Canadian provinces affordable and available contraception. It's not free, but your visit to your doctor is. And maternity and paternity, or as we call it here, parental leave, up to 12 months paid plus an additional six months unpaid. With no legal restrictions at a national level, it must be super easy to end an unwanted pregnancy in Canada, right? (laughs) Wrong. So Like I said, because responsibility for health policy is jurisdiction of the provinces as well as the federal government, there's really a patchwork of access. In the Yukon, for example, the only place for access is Whitehorse General Hospital, which means that thanks to the remoteness of lots of communities, that might only be accessible by an eight-hour drive or sometimes even a flight for the more remote communities. So in theory, most Canadians have access to abortion services through their provincial healthcare system. Although New Brunswick is an exception to this where 90% of residents actually have no adequate access whatsoever. The New Brunswick government only funds surgical abortion services in three hospitals located in two cities. Of note, the Canadian Civil Liberties Association actually launched a court challenge over lack of access in that province. I mean, this is a general uh, access to resources is a, is a, in many ways, a uniquely Canadian problem because we're so flipping big. We're so big. It's, we're so spread out, you know, being a country that's very rich in natural resources. A lot of communities live where those natural resources are, but they're not necessarily close to urban areas. If you live in an urban area, you can generally speak and get whatever you need. But if you live, you know, somewhere where the logging has been good or the mining has been good or the fishing has been good, for example, um, that might be a very different um, conversation. So I think it's an interesting point here, Annika, that you're making that while every Canadian has the right to a free and safe abortion, um, being able to actually access that is in many ways probably a little bit of a uniquely Canadian problem just because of the sheer size that we're working with. Yeah. And I think when we look at some of the most heart-wrenching cases, you know, the 12-year-old girl who's trying to hide it from her parents, the single mom that already has three kids that doesn't get to take eight hours off, that doesn't have childcare, that doesn't have options, that really doesn't make us look that much better than some of the states where you that where it is now restricted in the way that it is. Right. I think it also bears noting that while Canada has a year paid 
maternity leave, paternity leave, parental leave, um, that uh, paid leave is only a portion up to a cap of what your earnings would be. So, I mean, I was on maternity leave a real long time ago, you know, 12 years ago. Um, But the, and I was fortunate because I had an employer that topped up the remaining um, difference between Thank what, you, unions. <laughs> totally. Thank you, unions. I was very much a part of a union and it was great. I very much, you know, benefited from that. Um, and so I was able to access top up, but for a lot of Canadians, you know, that maternity leave uh, is not anywhere close to enough. And again, affordability in general is a major concern with everything all of the time for everybody here. (laughs) Yeah. Um, And and it's definitely no different when it comes to that. And there's always loopholes. Like when I had my baby, I was not an employee. So I had no guarantee of any sort of income. And in fact, I ended up quitting my job (laughs) because I couldn't go back at three months. It wasn't physically possible for me or for her. I couldn't get reliable childcare that covered the cost. It was going to cost me money to go back to work. It, that doesn't make any sense that like, why are we doing this? I'd rather just hang out with my kid and save us money. <laughs> so I know that's the reality for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. And, but I would like to just still say it's still better. The, it is way better. <laughs> it's way better. It blows my mind. I read a something the other day, which I wish I could remember so I could reference it properly, but the average number of days that an American woman goes back to work after having a baby was like 11 like you're not even done your sweats like your post delivery I was still, sweating I was still wearing them my mesh panties I could totally I, could barely, I had such low hemoglobin after I had rider I could barely walk at 11 days I couldn't even yeah that's just no it's inhumane yeah so I just want to as much as I'm happy to criticize any public access system that needs improving because they all do because yeah. that's just the way it is <laughs> Um, Mm -hmm. I'm also, I also want to be incredibly clear that I feel very fortunate that I live in a place that even has this, it needs to be better. We have to do better. And also I still feel very grateful that as a country, we have placed value on maternal and parental and infant health and wellness to the point where we have decided to fund minimally the first year of that little person's life and the person who gave birth to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's such a good call out, Lee. Um, so during last year's federal election, the Liberals promised to update the Canada Health Act to regulate access to abortion services across the country, and also said they would use federal health transfers to make sure provinces follow then these new rules. Note that this still hasn't happened. So at the end, when we talk about things you can do, I just want you to file that away in your brain. I will say in May, Canada announced $3.5 million in funding to improve access to abortions, $2 million going to Action Canada, formerly Planned Parenthood, and $1.5 million to the National Abortion Federation. Most of that money um, will fill in the gaps of access. Both organizations assist with travel for those who don't have access within their communities. Trudeau also says that the Liberal Caucus will be dis- discussing new regulations to protect a woman's right to choose. Um, And again, at this point, I will just say with the current supply and confidence agreement between the Liberals and the NDP, this feels like a time where that legislation could legitimately pass. 
Um, and again, at the end, we'll talk in a little bit more detail about things you can do, but I want you to just keep these things in your brains. Yes, please tell me what to do. This is the whole point of this thing. I want, I just want Annika to tell me what to do. <laughs> that's, that's why I'm here today. We'll get there. We'll get there. Um, yeah, good. So how is access to abortion protected in Canada? So, I mean, technically it's not. Well, sorry, that's the bad news. Um, because our media is so heavily saturated with American content, um, you might not have heard of R.V. Morgenthaler. I think most people have. Sorry, I think most people with uteruses that I know have. Um, it's you know, it's not exactly, but it, it it's the closest equivalent we have to Roe v. Wade. So to sum it up, this was 1988 landmark decision of the Supreme Court of Canada that struck down the abortion provision in the criminal code. Keep in mind, even prior to this, yes, there was an abortion provision in the criminal code, but it wasn't outlawed. It just required a certificate from what was called a therapeutic abortion committee. I'm using finger quotes. And that was set up in 1969. Now, this is a whole, that's a whole episode, but to sum it up, this committee consisted of three almost always male doctors who would decide if continuation of a pregnancy would cause the person having the pregnancy medical harm. As you can imagine, these committees led to wildly different outcomes and access or lack thereof. So this was actually one of the sticking points in R.V. Morgenthaler is when we look at how this is applied across the country, somebody could go to a therapeutic abortion committee in one city and, you know, be approved. And the exact same woman could go to a committee in a separate community and be denied. So that is not equitable under the Canadian Charter. What the ruling didn't do is declare a constitutional right to abortion. So when we talk about legislation, this is the piece that's missing that is we're kind of operating in like a void a little bit right now. So like a very Canadian thing where we're just like, <laughs> so here's this thing that is really important, but because no one's really fighting about it or talking about it, like we just have it and it's fine, but we don't need to codify it because like everyone's just like, yeah, that's just how it is here. We just right. have this thing until <laughs> talk about it. Okay. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, this feels like something awkward. Someone might feel a little uncomfortable talking about this and Canadians hate making other Canadians feel uncomfortable. So we just try not to do that. So this feels like a very unique approach to something critically important of just like, let's just not all talk about it, but also make sure that it's okay because it's important, but also uh, do we really have to like go all the way about this? I don't know. Do we? Totally. And interestingly, even in the 80s, we hear had a medical panel determine whether the pregnancy was going to cause harm right. to the woman. And that's still better than what <laughs> America's approaching right now. That as of 1969 in, in Canada, states. that in was states. it. In as of 1969 states. in Canada, you had more access than some states have right now today. Yeah. Today. <sighs> um, so as we talked about, basically this is just governed by the terms of the Canada health act under which it has been argued and agreed upon that abortion is a medically necessary service. Um, as a sidebar for a minute, actually, if you've never looked up a picture of the Supreme court of Canada, like, please go do it. They totally all dress like Santa Claus and it is like weird and adorable all at once. (laughs) 
like red <sighs> gowns and there's white fur trim like if you if you can think of something more quintessentially canadian than having our supreme court dress like santa i don't know what that is <laughs> I mean, it is the great white North, so they got, maybe they're cold. Maybe they're cold in their, in their chambers. I'm know? sure the AC is on. Yeah. <laughs> Lawyers wore robes and wigs up until very yep. recently. Oh, and they, stu- and they still do in England. Just in so England you know. they do. Yeah. yeah they, they still here, do though. in England. Yeah. Can't imagine having to dress up in a costume to go to court. Put like Anyways. a hitchy wig on. Like, is that distracting? I'd rather you just focus on like your job. No. Anyways, I also only do jobs I can do wearing um, stretchy pants. So maybe I'm at leisure person to ask. Um, And you know what? Actually, as a sidebar right now, let's talk for a minute about why the Canadian Supreme Court is so different from the U.S. Supreme Court in terms of partisanship. Because I think that's significant in what we're seeing in a lot of SCOTUS decisions in the U.S. right now is this really partisan entrenchment of and overruling of um liberties to be we should also we should also define SCOTUS do you know what I mean before we abbreviate (laughs) Supreme Court assuming things United States of America's uh, um, tell me Chris. I'm tell me I'm not alone in every time you read the abbreviation all you think I'm is scrotum, scrotum. come on <laughs> oh <laughs> every time I didn't until today now I can't will. believe you did it every time I, I was think like scrotum. every time I was like every that time. is a really unfortunate <laughs> it feels okay. a little appropriate today though today yep okay mm. go on um okay so generally in Canada, you cannot look at any given decision and immediately know whether a justice was appointed by a liberal or a conservative government. This is a good thing. The Canadian court is seen as nonpartisan in a way that the U.S. just isn't. There's a few kind of larger reasons that are generally agreed upon. One, Canadians generally are less partisan. Again, I've talked about this before, the two-party system in the U.S., that polarization really creates you're with us or you're against us in a way that in Canada, we just don't have to become a member of a political party officially. You've got to like pay them a bunch of money and sign a form. And generally, from the random sample of people who I have in my life who would talk to me about voting and how they vote, most people I know have voted for multiple parties over the course of their lives depending on the election, depending on their riding, depending on the issues at hand. So generally we're less partisan. Yeah. Um, I I absolutely fit into that, into that box. I have voted for at least three different parties that I can think of. Um, And while I have a tendency to lean a particular way and generally align with some particular stuff, sometimes I have to vote strategically because of my riding. Sometimes I, you know, it depends on what the election is. It's, it is, it is definitely very different. I have no strong dyed in the wool association one way or the other with any, any party. And I think that that's a pretty average experience. Common. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the second thing is that political parties simply haven't used the court to wage political battles the way that we see that happening in the U.S. Thank the Lord. Goodness. Partly because three, the country's appointment process is just less political. Starting really um, young in a judge's life, there is a lot of partisan um, 
alignment that happens. So by the time somebody gets to the point of being nominated for a higher court, there's already a very clear idea in the US if they're Republican or um, Democrat, Democrat, where the reality is in Canada, typically those decisions don't happen in the same way. Um, and just generally, the fourth thing is that the court's culture and ideology is more uniform, although that landscape is changing a little bit, and we'll dive into that in a little bit in a minute. In the U.S., political parties weaponize the judiciary as a fundraising and get-out-to-vote tool for their primaries base. We're seeing that right now, arguing that you know rights and policies long fought for are now at stake, and you've got to act now, otherwise they're going to overturn Roe v. Wade. <laughs> For the vast majority of Canadians, though, those same hot button issues, things like access to abortion, things like gay marriage, things like medical assistance and dying, those things for most Canadians feel already very settled. It's harder to weaponize because generally we agree with the way that things are right now. I also think some of this is because the Canadian Constitution recognizes the ultimate supremacy of Parliament, the elected officials, which is a really, really good thing. The court may not be the last word if legislators are willing to use the notwithstanding clause. And actually just this week, we have a great example of what that looks like in action. So the government introduced new legislation in what they called more charter-friendly language to uphold the idea that an intoxicated person can't be held criminally responsible for crimes committed when they were unable to know what they're doing. The Supreme Court ruled that the law as it stood was against our charter rights. So in theory, in, you know, right now we're in a gap where you could get, you know, completely out of your head, commit a crime, and you could use this as an opportunity to, you know, quote unquote, get out of jail free. However, the government rewriting the legislation ensures that all people now will be held responsible for their actions. Bam, problem solved. So this again, just gives us a piece that the U.S. simply doesn't have. Once SCOTUS overturns something, they've overturned something. That's it. In Canada, our parliament then goes back and just rewrites the law. <laughs> That's a really no. interesting distinction. I didn't realize that. I mean, this is where as an adult who actually gives a shit about Canadian politics, I really need to go and actually learn some things because when they were trying to teach me all this stuff in the world's most boring Canadian <laughs> history classes ever in grade mm -hmm. eight, like I couldn't have cared less. I, I no. know that I have learned this at some point, but now I'm like, what is that? Oh, mm -hmm. parliament? Who knew? Right? Like this is news to me. So this is again, why we're having this podcast. Because <laughs> you're not alone. Here's the thing. I think most- no. Canadians, you know, educated through the 80s and 90s can talk, tell you all about Upper and Lower Canada as if that's oh, relevant. Quite. I sure can. <laughs> to anything. Mm -hmm. I could tell you about all. that all day. <laughs> right. So these are the gaps that I think hopefully this school system is adjusting for a little bit. And at a minimum, you listening to this right now allows you to now be a person who can have these conversations with other people. So we'll We'll little game of telephone it for the things we missed in social studies eight. <laughs> um, I also just want to call out another part of the reason that things look so different here in Canada in terms of laws is that the statement of law made by the Supreme Court of Canada in numerous cases over and over again declares that a fetus is not a person in law while it remains part of the mother. An unborn fetus has no legal right separate from its mother in Canadian law. Birth is the defining moment of legal personhood. The end. That's not the case. Love to hear it. <laughs> Love to hear it. I'm so, um, here for that. I'm so here for that rational, reasonable, 
situation. And I just need to say something for a second. Anybody who knows me knows that I love nothing more than babies. Okay. I am hardly an anti-baby human being. Like, you know, there are like cat people and there are dog people. I'm people like nothing settles my central nervous system more than holding a baby. I have yet to find a baby who will not smile at me and love me and let me hold them. Even when the mother's like, Oh, my baby never likes anybody else. Like I have been made, I like one of my big career goals is to like hold other people's babies in like the NICU while they need to, I don't know, have a shower or something. Like I could not be more for babies. This is not about being someone who's like pro murdering babies. I'm absolutely not. Absolutely not. But I need to state that first and foremost, I care about the fully grown human, or in some cases, not fully grown human, but fully grown human in front of me first. Yeah. That's the person I need to care about first, actually. I love that. And then once that baby is out, give it to me and I will hold it all day. But (laughs) first and foremost, that woman's life, liberty, freedom, and health has absolutely got to be top, top line, top line concern. Because the reality is it has to be about more than just babies. And I think, you know, a lot of the conversation online right now around what's happened in the U S is that what we're seeing actually isn't pro-life. What it is, is pro-birth because it's not pro-paid maternity leave. It's not pro-increased, you know, uh, adoption robustness. It's not pro any of the other things we know that make a difference. No, they're not helping foster care situations. Right. Uh, you know, early childhood education, uh, funding daycare for people, accessible daycare, uh, parent paid parental leave, all of the, all of the things that we absolutely know go into forming a healthy human in the beginning of its life. None of that exists in the U S I, again, incredibly grateful that even in the not perfect state that we have it in Canada, that we have it. Yeah. Anyways. Sorry. Well, no, but I mean, kind of on that note, I think this is a good opportunity to talk about birth control because that's another piece of this allowing mm-hmm. the, the birthing person to be in control. Um, right. So out of the U S today in a concurring opinion, everyone's favorite husband of an insurrectionist, justice Clarence <laughs> Thomas wrote Christ. that the, the justices should reconsider quote all of this court's substantive due process precedents, including the case of Griswold v. Connecticut, which ruled that a ban on contraceptives was unconstitutional. Thomas said that in striking down legal basis for abortion, all of these decisions with the same reasoning are now suspect. That includes Oberfall v. Hodges, which legalized marriage equality nationally, and Lawrence v. Texas, which struck down sodomy laws. I think it's important to really, again, that this is a whole separate episode for sure, but it's not just marriage equity they're coming for. It's literally the reinstitution of things like sodomy laws. Good grief. I just like, and part of me just keeps going back to like, why? What is the point? What is the freaking point? There's so many other big deals to deal with. There are literally kids starving to death, like in the U S in the continental U S right. Like there's homelessness. There's, I mean, I could go off, but like, I just don't, I, I, I can't, I don't know what to, I don't, I don't even understand it. It's beyond me. It's totally beyond me. Anyways. Sorry, Annika. No, justice Thomas literally just said 
And I quote, we have a duty to correct the error established in those precedents. Good grief. Right. So needless to say, legal experts have raised concerns that justices could easily apply the argument for overturning Roe to limiting access to contraceptives, especially for things like IUDs and Plan B. Those will be first on the chopping block if this is something that comes to pass. So we'll t- let's talk about contraception access in Canada in a minute. Um, but I want to address first Canadian specific. If we have no laws that explicitly protect access to abortion, is it possible for there to be a change that would then restrict access? Technically, absolutely there is. The reality is that the charter does contain provisions that can be quote, reasonably interpreted, end quote, as protecting a right to abortion access. So it's likely no new law would be able to withstand charter scrutiny. The slow chipping away of access is really the more pressing concern, which is what we were just talking about. But because it's possible, let's just take a minute and look at the scenarios that could risk limiting access legally rather than just logistically. Logistically is probably the thing we need to be more concerned about, but let's look at legal just for the sake of argument, because of this is where we are right now. (laughs) Yeah. So all federal parties with one or more elected MPs, that's an important distinction, (laughs) expect their members to vote to protect abortion rights if it were ever to come up, except the conservative party. Right. There are often issues where parties are required to vote along party lines rather than with their own conscience or with their constituents. But the Bloc, Greens, Liberals, and NDP have all very clearly stated that their policy is pro-choice and they would absolutely require voting along poly- party lines if it were ever to come to that. So what's How going on? How do they with- hold their MPs to that? Do you know what I mean? Like just, I'm just for argument's sake. So say I'm a liberal MP. I am a staunch pro-lifer and my party has said, Hey, you vote on party lines. And what if I decide I'm not going to, do you know what I mean? So then what? So in Canada, we have something called a party whip, which I just think is like, I just like to say it. I think it's really funny. Um, I really like the visual. I like the visual on that. Like, (laughs) come on, you get in line. So The party whip is a member of a political party in the House of Commons, a Senate or the provincial legislature who um, ensures party discipline along members of that party's caucus. So the whip comes out. Literally. (laughs) Literally, the, the actual human whip. Yeah. So when a vote is called in legislature, division bells ring until whips for each party are satisfied that there are sufficient members of their own party present for the vote to proceed. Oh, Um, so the whip is preventative. The party discipline is very strict in Canada and party members are expected to vote with their party unless it's a free vote. So we'll talk more about that. Interesting. So the whip like comes out and is like, my eyes are on you. Yeah. We're all doing what we're told. We Everybody's doing this. what we said. Yeah. I'm okay. watching. I will tell dad. <laughs> and this does feel very Canadian. Totally. Get along. You decide you, you said before you would agree. Totally. You, promised. Gonna... you promised. You yeah. promised. This is probably a trickle down from the, from um, the UK though. Yes. Oh, but you, there's almost but you, there's is. British whips. Yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Totally. So, okay. So what's going on with the conservatives then officially their position 
officially on paper is, and I quote, a conservative government will not support any legislation to regulate abortion. Hmm. That can, that's an, that could go both ways. Couldn't it? (laughs) That's some Hmm. very interesting language. Yeah. So the, as you may or may not be aware of the conservative party right now, it has a leadership race that is ongoing. Uh, both of the front runners, both Sheree and Paula Vier have issued statements echoing that wording. I have feelings about that, but I, that's a separate episode. <laughs> what people say when they're running and what people say when they're right. actually in are often very different things. Right. Yeah. So the reality is what we have also heard from the conservative party is that this would be a vote where they allow MPs to vote with their conscience. If that is the case, 110 of the currently elected 119 conservatives have explicitly anti-choice or unknown views. Hmm. So I can actually really see the conservatives doing that because they're Right now, like politically speaking, that is the party other than our fringe far, far, far right party. That yeah. is the party, the people's party, if you want to look them up. Um, the conservative party is the one trying to sort of grasp all the people that are very upset with current government. So they're trying to cast a bit of a wider net. So by having a party stance that is air quotes, pro-choice, pro-personal choice, mm-hmm. that can be <laughs> beneficial within the um, the climate with That's that's a really interesting perspective, Jenny. Let's touch for a minute. Is, is contraception access in Canada safe? So as we talked about Canada, well, we didn't talk about this, but I think it's important to note Canada is one of the only countries with universal health care that does not also have universal access to contraception for people with uteruses. We love this in Canada. Kind of like what you said before, Lee, it's like we champion ourselves. Like we're so progressive, but then when it matters, we actually just kind of have a patchwork of like gappy voids. (laughs) Right. Also, if you're lucky enough to have prescription coverage, your birth control might actually not be covered. Great West life doesn't cover diaphragms and only covers some IUDs. Sun life doesn't cover anything except oral contraceptives and so on and so forth. Jenny, I don't know. You might know more about this. I, again, I know that the situation in BC is a little different than in other places in Canada. I just know my personal. So right now that's interesting because I have different extended coverage and I have to on my list for today is to call my doctor to see if I have a three-year IUD or a five-year, because if it is three years, it's due for a change out this summer. Um, but, uh, when I was with blue cross, everything was, I like, they literally were like, which IUD do you, do you like? Here's the difference between them. What do you think? And then I, it was covered, but if I, per, for example, put a copper IUD in, had horrible periods, which is like a common, common thing, mm-hmm. right? And decided this was not the IUD for me. They wouldn't cover a second one in the period. So if it was supposed to be good for five years or whatever, I wouldn't then be like, I don't like this. I want a new one and have the second one covered. So again, it's like, it's a real patchwork. Like, oh, well, you're just going to have yeah. to like become anemic because your periods are so terrible yeah. for the next four years. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Or pay tried $500 to go for a new one. Right. <laughs> yeah. Jokes well, on and you. they're expensive. Yeah, they are they're expensive. expensive. I had a, yeah. I had a Morena IUD and I remember going to pick it. Cause I had to like, go pick it up and take it to yeah, my, you take it in. Yeah. To my doctor yeah. to go put it in. I was really, it's I was like in that the, big box. Yeah. I was like, what the <laughs> literal hell is this? This thing is like, like longer than my upper body. Like that better not this, be going in there. Yeah. No, I was like, where is this going down my legs? Like, I don't understand. But 
I remember paying, I, I had to pay for it and then remit the mm-hmm. thing. And it was fucking expensive. Yeah. It was like hundreds of dollars. I was like, yeah. what? And so I remember taking it in and getting the thing done. And then I gave the bill to my husband because he had to then go put it through our extended at the time. And he was like, what the heck? Which again, as someone who is like, I used to be on extended health and had everything paid for. And then for mm-hmm. a long time, haven't had extended. And we're very keenly aware of how much everything costs those little hidden things. Like I was like, Oh, prescriptions are like 20 bucks. Not a big deal. And then you go get a, a IUD. That's several hundred dollars. You're like, what? Say what? Sorry. Annika, no, th- this is all, <laughs> this is all part of this conversation. Right. And actually, yeah. you know, just to kind of highlight this before we move into, you know, what can we do? I think this is another important conversation to have with your elected officials to have with your doctor, right? The more we can be shifting this narrative around, you know, it's kind of like, oh, we have universal health care, except for your teeth and your eyes. <laughs> we have mm-hmm. universal health care, except if you want to prevent getting pregnant. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's true. We'll take it out of you for free if you can right. get there. <laughs> right. Right. Because that's way less traumatic. And I'm sure it's probably cheaper. Yeah. Oh yeah. Less resources for sure. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. So what can we do? It's really hard being in Canada and feeling really helpless. You know, we can't vote in a new governor of Texas. (laughs) We just can't. Um, so there's really kind of two big things that we can do here that I'm going to talk about. And then if there's anything else that you ladies have, or that you've come across, like, let's talk about that now, because I think one of the hardest things is just feeling really hamstrung. So first, if it is financially possible for you to donate money, you should really think about doing that. Even if it's $3, I know inflation is bananas right now, abortionfunds.org and I'll link everything I'm talking about right now in the show notes. Um, this is an excellent choice, although I will say at the time of our recording this, their website has crashed, which I mean, I think is like a good sign probably that people are mm-hmm. rallying to support this. Um, I'm sure by the time we release this episode, they'll have it sorted, but just sidebar that don't like give up. If you can't access the website for one day, please put it on your to-do list and come back to it. Um, abortionfunds.org is the national network of local abortion funds. So if you donate currently, your donation will be split between 80 different funds. Um, when their upside is, when their website is back up and running properly, you can flag specific locations or regions that you want that money to go to. Um, I'll also link in the show notes. And this is like, this is where we're at right now because this is unfolding in real time. But I came across a really helpful Google doc that somebody has created um, that has a list of trigger law abortion funds. So those are places that literally as of 7 a.m. Pacific this morning, abortion is illegal in these places. Um, Almost all of the funds on this list are run by black and brown women. Once again, white feminism is more interested in upholding the patriarchy and capitalism. But anyway, (laughs) honestly, I know there are a lot of options and it can be really hard to know what's legit and what's a crisis pregnancy center in abortion providers clothing. The reality of the time we're in means you just need to do some digging and that if you are determined to make a difference, you can through your donation. That's the reality of the current landscape. And I suspect in the coming days, weeks, and months, 
a lot of the existing networks will have to go even more underground as things become more and more illegal, as it becomes illegal to travel out of state for an abortion, as it becomes illegal to help someone get an abortion, larger organizations like abortionfunds.org, for example, have a national approach so they can always be hiding in safe harbor states while still doing good work in states that are not are no longer safe harbors. So as Canadians, the next most important thing you can do today is to find out your member of parliament's position. If they are anti-choice or unknown, it is particularly important that you reach out to them. Although given the climate politically right now, I will be reaching out to my MP who is explicitly pro-choice anyway, because I believe that this is very important. I will link a really helpful sample letter in the show notes because a lot of people don't know how to write an effective letter to their MP. And when I say letter, like you don't have to put it in the mail. You can literally email them. All of your MP's email addresses are available in the ethernet. (laughs) But look, I realize sometimes it feels like writing to your MP is like rolling a boulder up a hill. Like it doesn't feel like enough. And it does honestly matter especially if your MP is anti-choice or is unknown, their stance is unknown. Also, with those in particular, call them, fill up their inbox, send the letter 35 times, talk to their staffers. Pressure politically is what allows things to change. Put pressure on Trudeau and Jagmeet Singh of the NDP to work together and actually codify access into law. They have both said that they want to do this. This is where we can hold them to account for that. The number one American import into Canada is culture. And unless mm-hmm. we work really mm-hmm. hard to keep ours safe, heading the way of the U.S. is absolutely possible. And even if your MP is expressly pro-choice, it's still so good to send that messaging because it really reinforces them publicly making their stance. And it re I think it's just positive reinforcement is like always fantastic. And especially if they are of, you know, an NDP or they are a liberal MP, those are again, parties and leaders who have explicitly said they want to take action on this when we can put pressure on those MPs to then hold them to account for that, that becomes extra important. So I think that's a really good call out, Jenny. I want to read something here really quick. So this is from Sarah Bessie. She's a author and a person in the world who's whose work I appreciate. And she's a, and she's a Canadian. And in January, she wrote a post and I keep coming back to this because I think what you just said about America's number one import into Canada is culture. And I think it's really important for us as Earth Canadians, and especially, I mean, I can say for myself, the basically the first generation that was like really on the internet, right? And in social media, where a lot of that, you know, is bleeding through even faster than it ever did when we were just watching, you know, Family Ties back in the, <laughs> back in the day. Um, I read this in January and it's, it totally hit home. So she wrote, Canadian ideals are not life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Canadian ideals are peace, order, and good government. And I thought that that was incredibly poignant because it speaks to the fact that 
as Canadians, we're generally very peaceful and reticent and non-confrontational, I would argue almost to a fault. And while I wholeheartedly appreciate that generally speaking, I can hang out with any Canadian and it's not going to turn into like a fiery conversation about almost anything really, (laughs) because we like to just keep things copacetic, which, you know, for my central nervous system's health, I really appreciate that. But I think in this particular time, I think it's incredibly important to lean on that good government aspect of things and to do what Annika just said. Like, I'm so grateful for Annika's work in her research, in learning all of this stuff, partially because she has the brain for it, but mostly because my body right now actually couldn't handle it. I've already cried today because I'm so upset about what everyone is feeling and going through and just how unsettling this is for millions of people. And then as a Canadian, my biggest worry is exactly that culture import. And this idea of like, you know, when we're mad at the government, we just, no, if you're mad at the government, you write them a damn letter. Thank you. You send them an email. Thank you. You get in their inbox. Thank you. Show up at their office. If you're really passionate about something, they all have offices. Most of them keep office hours. Even if they're not there, I guarantee you, they have staffers whose literal paid job it is to listen to you. Mm -hmm. And they have like some sort of, I don't know, metric that they use where they assume if one person has written about this, it probably is representative for this many more people. Right. So when you think that it's, oh, it's just one letter and who nobody cares. No, no. The fact that you take the time, like I'll be doing this today for sure. If you take the time to write the letter, get in the voice box, voice, you know, voice mailbox of your MP, you know, I mean, Jagmeetson is not my MP, but you better believe I'm going to be sending him something today saying, get on it, brother. Let's go. Right. I'm going to do the same thing for JT. I'm going to be like, it's time. It's really time. Right. My MP is a conservative MP. So I will be, I don't know if he's one of the ones who voted one way or the other. I have no idea. I got to look into it, but you had better believe that I'll be saying something today. Well, thank you, Annika. This has been very informative and very helpful as per always. I'm really grateful for your work. I'm so glad that we mobilized to do this. I really appreciate that we could have that conversation a couple of hours ago and hop on and do this because I, it's really hard feeling helpless and it's really hard for my big heart to not go to the people who will be most dramatically impacted by this, the youngest, the most oppressed, the women of color, the people who don't look like they should have uteruses that have uteruses. (laughs) These are all of the people that will be most negatively impacted by this. And it's hard feeling helpless. So you have at least two things you can go do right now. You're not helpless. Annika here. I just want to add one last note, especially as we talk about ways to help. As Jenny said at the beginning of this episode, things are going to unfold, shift and change really quickly right now. If you're listening to this episode a week, a month or even a year after we recorded it, there will likely be more or at least different ways to help. One thing I want to highlight that we didn't touch on during this episode is that I think we have a 
cultural conversation that creates in our head this idea that abortion is a really invasive procedure that requires a doctor and you know physically going inside the uterus thankfully the reality is that we live in a world with incredible modern medicine advances and many many abortions especially caught early enough are just a simple pill Side note, those pills can be mailed out, which can be a way to circumvent some of the more intense restrictions. Organizations like Hey Jane are currently doing this. And the more we can have conversations about how these procedures can be simple, safe in your home, and with one simple medication, the more that we normalize and make this kind of care more accessible. Remember, no government can ever outlaw abortion. They can only try and outlaw safe abortion.